Hello, welcome to Pod Songs. I'm Jack Stafford, and I interview inspiring people in service to others as inspiration for a new song. Today's guest is an economist and host of the Econ Talk podcast, which has been going since 2006, which in podcast terms makes it a founding father. He's a research fellow at Stanford University's Hoover Institute and now president of Shalom College in Israel. He writes books, as you would expect, but he's a real communicator and publishes videos on economics, some of which have been viewed millions of times. One of the most widely watched was Fear the Boom and Bust, a rap battle between 20th century economists John Maynard Keynes and Frederick von Hayek. This is my kind of economist. So I'm pleased to speak to Russ Roberts. Thank you very much for agreeing because, uh, you know, you're a, you're a legend in podcasting. I mean, you're, you're over 750 episodes of Econ Talk now. 765, I think. 766, wow. something like that. Yeah. Stunning, That's incredible, and you it impresses you get... even me. I, <laughs> I, I can't believe it. <laughs> because and you get to speak to all the the greatest minds in economics, so you, you don't have to study anymore. You can just you just get it hot off the hot off the vine, no? Yeah, except if you've noticed, I don't I don't interview very many economists lately. They're uh, they're not as interesting to me. I, I spend a lot more time with. Um, other folks, um, I, I try to learn something from every guest, mm-hmm. and um, I don't think I know everything there is to know about economics. But I'm not sure I know if a lot of the guests I could people want me to interview. I don't think know a lot more than I do. So, or or I've already heard what they have to say. So I've kind of learned what they have to teach, and mm. you know, like people want me to do more on monetary policy. I don't understand monetary policy much, so. It's a good idea, <laughs> but I, I probably had, I don't know, 50 interviews on monetary policy, 40, mm-hmm. 25, but more than five. Mm-hmm. Uh, and most of the people who want to talk about it have a system mm-hmm. and they can tell you how this causes that. And I don't, it's not so quite so reliable. So I've become a little jaded about that's my field. To, that's one thing I wanted to ask you about is how, because I studied economics A-level 25 years ago, which is... I don't know what that is in America. It's dark ages. <laughs> no, but I mean, in terms of A level is what you do when you're 16 to 18 uh-huh. before university. Um, I, th- I managed to pass, which is the, the best I can. But it, we, we, you know, we were studying Keynesianism, monetarism back then. And it doesn't seem it's changed that much. No, not much. So it did for a while. That? It did for a while. And then they decided... We have to have it back again. You know, they, they, they it lost favor, which is disturbing. Mm-hmm. Uh, that it, it looks sort of akin to a fashion trend rather than a scientific theory. But it, Keynesianism fell out of favor. And then in 2008, it was a tool that people felt they needed. So they decided maybe it works. So they tried it anyway again. Mm-hmm. Uh, having had a couple decades of people saying, well, we learned our lesson. Keynesian stimulus doesn't really work. Now, mm-hmm. I don't want to suggest that was a, an unanimous consensus. It wasn't. There were still people who were 
who believed in Keynesianism, but a lot of people gave it up mm. based on what they thought of as evidence. And then, well, what the heck, you know? Because I saw your, your rap video between Keynes and uh, who was the other guy? I don't remember. Oh, I don't remember. I think it was Hayek. H H A Y H A Y E K. He's not as well known, strangely enough. So why didn't you choose Friedman? Why? Why? Well, we could have. Um, and it's it's interesting that that Hayek really had more of a moment in the aftermath of the 2008 crisis, I think, than Friedman did. Um, Friedman had things, to, Friedman had passed away by then, but he had things to say that were relevant, especially about the bailouts. Mm. Um, but Friedman was was one of the people who put the stake into the heart of Keynesianism mm -hmm. in, the, mm -hmm. in the 70s and, and 80s through his uh, a variety of research that he did and studies that he did. Um, I, that's a good question. Why we, we we could have, but Hayek was plenty fun. Yeah, because you're the thing with this podcast is I write songs about my guests because they're not singers and they 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 don't write. But you've already done it. You don't need me. Oh, correct. Yeah, and I I've, I've written dozens of bad songs in my time. <laughs> uh, now I love songwriting actually in poetry. It's it's incredibly fun. So yeah. I'm uh, I really salute what you're doing here. I think it's an incredibly creative and fun idea. So what? Let's try and narrow this down for you. Okay. Looking at the book, the books you've read, and um, uh, I just interviewed Brian Kaplan. Actually, you're my second economist, and um, I was speaking to him about his what to write a song for him. And we went the open borders. He has this. Uh, yeah. You know, he wrote a very good book, a animated. Um, it was an illustration, illustrated book. So I so I did that for him, and he had these. He had keyhole economics, uh, keyhole solutions. So you just focus on. The very mm -hmm. small part. Yeah, I learned a lot of chatting to him. So yeah, good. So what about what? What for you then would be this? Um, would be the red line in your work you, because you've written about, yeah, Adam Smith. You you've done the rap. You've done gambling with others, other people's money. So, um, and my next book, by the way, is on numbers and how okay. we think about numbers and how we use them to make decisions, and how there are a lot of decisions that we want to make that numbers don't really help and people find that very unpleasant they don't like that at all they don't really want to believe it uh we really like the idea that if we just get the right algorithm and the right data we can figure out the right thing to do and i think most of life isn't like that at all uh the most important things in life aren't like that at all whether to marry who to marry how many whether to have children and how many where to where to put your emphasis of your career your work-life balance you name it all the important decisions we make, I don't think data help very much. There's information that helps, but data is not so helpful. And date, and I, the distinction is that I'd make, for example, is that if you want to know what it's like to be a parent, whether it's a good idea for you, if you if if you're thinking about it, you could ask people who who have been who have who are parents whether they regret or are happy with the decision. You would get some data. How informative is that for you if you're not like them? Well, you could say, well, I'm going to look at the people who are like me and see if they're happy. And then you'd have to ask, well, what's happy mean? Is happy mean like it's fun all the time? That's not parenting. Not going to be. <laughs> Does it mean it's satisfying? Well, what do you mean by satisfying? Meaningful? Well, maybe. And then you start to ask, and, and what are my characteristics that I want to look at to decide that I'm like or not like the people who are happy. Is it how tall I am? Nah, it's probably not that. 
quality of my marriage, quality of my parents' marriage, how they parented me. All of a sudden, you start thinking about it, you realize ah, the data that would be necessary to kind of answer that question. So now, where do you do? But most people just said, in, through human history, well, we're just going to have kids. That's what we do. <laughs> That's what people mm -hmm. do. But we're in a time now where people start to say, well, maybe it's not a good thing to have kids. Maybe it's not good for me, good for the world. I think it's good for the world. I think it's good for me. I don't know if it's good for you. That's your call. But um, if you start thinking about, well, if I want to make that decision in a so-called rational way, how, how would I do it? And the natural impulse is to do something like do a survey or ask people or quantify something. And you can't. And and that means, what? Do you, so now what? Do you just flip a coin? Do you ask your friends? Do you consult with your parents? And and what I think what we do as human beings increasingly is is – not increasingly throughout of our throughout human existence is we look at narratives. So one way you can find out what it's like to be a parent, and you really anybody who's, who is a parent kind of realize I think realizes that it's not like not being a parent, but with a kid. It's more than yeah. just there's another. It's not like it, it's 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 something like getting a dog, but not exactly. So that now what? So one way you can figure out what it's like would be to read. Books about parenting, fiction, narratives, watch movies, and they would give you, I think, read poetry. They they give you some of the flavor of what it's like to be a parent. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean you, you can't fully understand it, but but they give you the flavor. You know, I had a guest, uh, L.A. Paul, a philosopher who writes about this. She calls it the vampire problem. Before you're a vampire, vampiring looks disgusting. But once you become a vampire, it's awesome. And you look back on your tawdry, <laughs> dull life as a non-vampire, and you go, what was I thinking? So now you ask yourself, what should you do? Should you be a, if you have a chance, be a vampire, you get to live forever. But, you know, there's some negatives. Um, you lose out on a bunch of things, and you might consider it immoral to drink human blood. And But once you're a vampire, you don't. So, you know, how do you – what's that moral calculus? What, how do you think about that? So – all the tools that we usually use for rationality and economics, decision-making, they're not helpful. So you can read a book and get a flavor of, of what it's like to be a vampire. You won't know it in your bones until you make the leap. And this is the kind of leap, like parenting, where it's it's really hard to go back. It's not like moving to Italy where you can say, hey, you know, I don't like it so much. I'm going to go back to England. If you become a parent, you can put your kid up for adoption. But even if you do that, you still are a parent. You still have parent have, have created a child. So that that is, um, I would say, is mostly outside the realm of rational decision making. And I think you need a different way to think about it. One way to think about it, I've suggested, is is to explore narratives about the experience to learn about qualitative information. I would call, we would call that. And then the other way is to think about what. The philosopher Agnes Callard calls aspiration. You know, what do I want to be? I've been thinking a lot about this question. It's okay, Jack, if I just keep rambling on. Sure. No, this is great. I'm okay. making notes. So so I'm interested in the question of, in my book, you know, who do you want to be when you grow up? Not what do you want to be? We all think about that question at various times when we're growing up. Like, do I want to be a, a, a doctor, a lawyer, a firefighter, a, a teacher? Uh, a podcaster, uh, 
journal on it. So. Many people say that. But yeah. No, they don't. But more now than before, we can mm. say that with assurance. Anyway, so you, you think about what do I want to be when I grow up? We think we understand that question. It's an occupational question, and occupation is a third of your life, roughly. Mm. You could argue it's half your waking life. It's not unimportant. Um, but I, I like the question. Who do you want to be when you grow up? What kind of person do you want to be? Do you want to do you aspire to be a parent? Do you aspire to be a virtuous person? Uh, do you aspire to be a particular kind of person? The kind, a good friend, a good spouse, a good neighbor, a good a good uh, child to your parents, a good parent to your children. Those I think are the and and I most of the time we don't think about that. We got work to do in life. We move on and things fall in our lap and. But I think we spend way too much time planning our occupation, our career, our educational path, and not enough time planning our development of our what used to be called our soul. If you don't believe in a soul, it's okay. Call it something else. But our, our essence, what kind of person we are, who we are, our, our being, our identity. And I think the when I think about parenting or marriage or career even – I think of it as a question of identity, not so much of the way economists traditionally think about it as, you know, what are the how how happy am I going to be? What are going to be the flows of pains and pleasures is what Bentham calls it that that are going to accrue to me as a parent? And the answer is well, it's a lot of pain <laughs> as a parent. You know, there there's there's change of diapers and there's all kinds of costs that are non-monetary and monetary. There's heartache and worry, and so it's a crazy idea to think this is good for your happiness. People do it. Do they do it because of that? They they fool. Do they think they're going to have a great time? It's all going to be running through the meadow with their kid holding their hand, chasing butterflies. I don't think they're not that <laughs> stupid. So why do we do it? And the answer we do it is because we we want to be a parent. We have an, a, a desire to inhabit that identity, and I think that's a very useful and powerful way to think about life's choices is very much against the standard economics way. The standard economics way is, you know, I look at the, the costs of benefits. Hmm. And then when you start doing that, you realize, I mean, in this case, for example, the benefits of having children, what are they? So I justify a bigger car. <laughs> so I'll feel good about myself when they, they smile at me. I mean, the, the benefits are intangible and deep and they're not, but they're not, they're not like the benefits that economists are typically thinking about. So to come full circle to your original question, I've become increasingly interested in what I what I call it's not the best word, but it's the only it's one that I know. I'm interested in human flourishing. How, how do we flourish? What do we need to do to ourselves? What do we need to experience? What do we need to take hold of in order for us to flourish, each of us to flourish as individuals and as members of communities and marriages and families and our country. That that's the that's to me the, the questions we ought to be thinking about. And those are philosophical questions. Economists try to say things about them, but I think the tools that we have to use as economists are misleading um, and often ignore the more important aspects of flourishing because we can't measure them. Things like dignity, agency, responsibility, pride. Um, those things, you know, they're related to money, something we can measure, but very, imper very imperfectly. So I think the, that's what, that's what my new next book's about. And I, and, and it's what I've been increasingly interested in. And if you, if you 
read between the lines on at econ talk over the last i'd say five years uh and i think we don't spend any time on that if you think about that like our education system in the united states is devoted from k through 12. uh it's devoted to helping you get into a good college it's mm -hmm. devoted to helping you pass a bunch of tests that that are hurdles gates you have to get through getting good grades studying how to write a paper uh and then you go to college and in college college is increasingly a place where you learn a trade a very small percentage of the time most of the time you're exploring your personal identity and various ways socially with with uh the other students and education is kind of like a little side thing that we do in america um in college and uh to the extent we do it it's either it's really only not really only but it's in, increasingly devoted to either acquiring a technical skill it's typically called stem science technology engineering or math or business uh a very practical in theory uh degree earning the stamp on your forehead that lets you go out into the world to make a living the idea that the the thousands of hours you spend in the classroom or in the work related to the classroom should be devoted to personal transformation to understanding yourself to thinking about what's important to you to understanding what people great minds of the past have had to say about those questions that's just gone in america it's it's only alive in a handful of places uh and um i think that's a tragedy uh i don't know if you know it but i have a career move coming up do you know this no i didn't know no so i'm going to be the uh president of shalem college in jerusalem starting oh. in march oh, congratulations. It's, it's devoted to what we're talking about and oh. it's just kind of a it's not like oh now that i'm president i better start talking about <laughs> the great books it's it happens to be a place where they the two first two years are a core curriculum of the great ideas and books of 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 the past and of jewish thought and in israel's a jewish state and and thinking about how people can use that those that time in the classroom to transform themselves and ideally then to transform the world the, around them, their society and their country. And that's a really novel idea. Weird, isn't it? Because that was the yeah. idea behind education for that the first- to me like education. <laughs> yeah, first 3,000, 2,000 years, you know, going back to Aristotle, I guess, um, Plato, you know, it's it's an old idea. It, yeah. It's fallen out of favor. But I think it's the, um, I really think it's the important way we ought, we ought to think about uh, education. Not right. for everybody. Some people should learn a trade, learn a skill, and certainly people who think deeply about themselves and the great ideas of the past and how they fit in with that and what how they ought to process those ideas. Those people can have a skill too. They can go out and make a living. It's not like you're going to sit in a. I'm not thinking about Rodin's The Thinker. It's not like you're going to sit in a thinking pose for the rest of your life, reading all the great books. But there's wisdom and knowledge to be thought about and processed, and then. Knowing how to think and read is a really good idea. I don't know. It seems it seems bizarre that it's that it's a novelty item. Yeah, well, that Brian Kaplan also wrote a book about the stamp on the forehead and correct. So yeah, it seems like uh, 
people who are st in academia for a long time get disillusioned by it. A little bit. Well, there's two of us. I wouldn't say <laughs> I don't know what spread it is. Uh, it kind of, um, uh, you know, expression I've learned to love is uh, where you stand depends on where you sit. That that sort of that kind of summarizes the economist view of. It's a good line. It, it's a bit it's a bit cynical, right? Because it suggests that. Uh, what you think is true depends on your situation. Mm. Uh, what principles you hold dear depend on your situation. And so I don't want to suggest that's true irrevocably for every person all the time. But if you look around at the world, people are influenced by the incentives that they, that they face. They're influenced by, I wouldn't say controlled, but they're influenced by. So academics, I'll, I'll pick on economists. Economists, I had a, a guest, um, Luigi Zingales, uh, who, who made the point that economists always assume that where you stand affects where you sit, but not economists. We don't, we're just truth seekers. You know, we don't, <laughs> we're not influenced by that. But of course we are. And so economists tend to believe that their tools are accurate, powerful, that the education they provide is useful, that human capital, the, the knowledge that, that people learn from the educational process pays off. So when you say that it's the most academics are disillusioned, it's costly to feel disillusioned. Most people don't like that. So they're happy to be, to stay maybe uh, believing in the value of the stamp, but uh, independent, not the value of the stamp, the value of the education itself. That it's not about just the, just about the stamp. And I used to be one of those people, by the way. Because that was very consistent with my worldview. The idea that people would spend four years paying thousands of dollars in foregone time to get a stamp. That's like a really inefficient way to get a stamp. And so when when you point that out, people say, so that either, either mm -hmm. there's something really valuable that is produced in those four years. And it's more than the stamp. Or it is a waste of time, but the stamp, it's the best way to get the stamp. <laughs> there's no... Mm better way there's no way to do it in two years or at half the cost because if there if it were there were a better way there'd be competition and new places would come along offering the stamp for less effort and so anyway that that's uh um, it's, it's to show that you are conformed no i can i can work for this if i when i get this job i will work for the system i'm a good worker i can conform yeah, yeah. And, you can, and if, thought, you, if you suggest something to replace that, then you're obviously not a conformist. Oh, my gosh. You're dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> but I wasn't expecting you to say that about the numbers because we're in a number-worshipping society. I mean, yeah. and, you know, everyone who's writing books in the economy field is, you know, they've seen the data and they've, they've discovered a new and interesting yep. way to look at these statistical correlations. And yep. it's, so, but you're saying... Ah, well, a lot of it, I'm saying two things about it. One is a lot of those efforts looks, they all look scientific, right? There's, there's Greek letters usually involved in the, in the paper and in the study. And then there's uh, statistical techniques that are very intimidating. You know, there's statistical significance and there's kurtosis and there's heteroscedasticity. These are all fancy terms from yes. econometrics. <laughs> Um, so they look, it looks like a science. Um, hmm. Statistics looks like a science. It's scientific. I wouldn't call it a science. Uh, the reason is, is that 
good statisticians realize this, that a lot of times the, the fundamental assumptions you need to justify the conclusions you're going to draw aren't really true. So now what do you do? And, and the answer is you have to be humble about what you found and, and concede that you may have found something spurious. And that is not as much fun as saying you found something that's true. So there is a bias toward people claiming they found true stuff. And certainly there's a bias toward in, in the profession. This is a much better example of where you stand depends on where you sit. Most economists believe these tools are very reliable. But if you ask them, how, how do you know they're reliable? And the answer is, well, you know, there's a theoretical result. Okay, I agree, but that is a little bit iffy because of this question of whether the assumptions behind that theoretical result are, are hold, hold. The real question would be, it's always the scientific question, does it replicate? Can you replicate this? Most economic studies can't be replicated. They rely on a one-time series of events that it's like saying, well, the next time we have a, a recession that's driven by housing problems and mortgage issues and <laughs> the Federal Reserve doing X, Y, and Z, we have a prediction that we can test. We, we, you know, we found this relationship in the past, and now we'll see if it holds the future. But each time when the future comes along, it's like, well, this isn't really quite like the last one. So it really doesn't have to be turn out prediction is exactly right. Um, so that's one problem of the replication. The bigger problem also, you know, in smaller studies, smaller focused studies, is that, you know, you find it in this village, deworming the kids leads to an incredible increase in their school at work. And then they do better in school. They stay longer in school. They get better jobs. They get better salaries. And therefore, deworming is the way to improve the well-being of, peop of people in Africa because they have these children have these parasites. We need to deworm them with this cheap pill, and it's wonderful. But then it turns out that a lot of times it doesn't work so well. You deworm them, but they don't stay in school any longer. They don't get higher salaries, or they do stay in school longer, and they don't get higher salaries. So now what do you do? It's not like sci the science we normally think of that holds at all times and all places. The part of economics that does hold in all times and all places that things like people respond to incentives. Where you stand is where you sit. There are trade-offs. There, there, there are a lot of things in economics that are reliable, more or less, but they're not reliable in the way science – we think of science as reliable. So we have data, but whether the findings of that data can be replicated and, and are the level of reliability of being able to put a person on the surface, of the, say, of the moon is not the same. And we only pretend that it's the same. So that's number one. I think a lot of the techniques that, that we use in, in economics are not reliable because they can't be replicated. They can't be checked. You know, if I send a person to the moon, I say, this is the way we're going to get to the moon, and they don't come back because <laughs> we missed it. There's kind of evidence. There's, it, it, how do you do that when you pass the minimum, increase the minimum wage in Seattle, and people say, well, didn't it, it, you predicted that it would reduce the number of jobs, and it didn't. Well, but wasn't Seattle like growing like crazy during that time? And maybe that minimum wage was at a level that wasn't going to be problematic for the job market. And then if it did cost a lot of jobs, the other side would have something to say, too, as to why that was – explicable oh yeah because this changed and that changed and there, there was an increase in the minimum wage in, in oregon and so there's almost always a way to be uncertain about the findings that's the first thing but the second thing and this is the more important part i think a more interesting part because it's subtler is that there's so many things that there aren't data for so either you ignore those things or you just you try to remember to keep them in mind that they're hard to keep in mind you know so an example of this would be, uh, well, there's so many. I, I've been writing about the, uh, I don't want to use that example. Um, I'll just talk about dignity, right? Mm -hmm. So 
so when we when we, I'm a big favor I'm a I, I'm a big favor of leaving most of the economy alone. It doesn't mean I'm an anarchist, but I'm a, I don't think government should be steering uh, where resources go and and subsidizing this and taxing that. Um, it, it it has to do that a little bit to raise money to provide for basic services that we the government provides better than anything than the market would but that's sort of the minimum level and it shouldn't be doing much above that when it does stuff above that it, it gets into cronyism and it gets distorted corrupted and doesn't have a good track record in my view but you, know, you can debate that but that's not my point right now my point is that um I lost my train of thought. What was I saying, Jack? Do you remember? About dignity and about uh, so many things like oh, right. data. Right. So so if technological change happens and your product is no longer of service to anybody, so you're out of business, or if trade happens and your factory moves to a cheaper location or your workers in another place uh, can compete with you and now you're in trouble, well, that's hard on people. A lot of glorious good things come from that creative destruction, innovation of all kinds, the transformation of our standard of living over the last hundred years, which allows us to live longer, uh, healthier lives, relies on that creative destruction, allowing technological change and trade to transform our standard of living through specialization, through competition. So I'm a big fan of that. But I would never say that it, it's free or that it's all good or everybody benefits and the people who get hurt you know we usually don't we usually say things like well you know the people who are put out of work they'll find a new job sometimes they will sometimes they don't mm -hmm. but but how do you count if you're trying to do a cost benefits analysis how do you count the loss of dignity from a person who can't work we're in the middle of the covid pandemic right now uh it's been just a lot of the lockdowns and quarantines have been justified to save lives we forget, of course, that nobody lives forever. Actually, we all die. So it's just a question of when. Mm. And 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 so what we do while we're alive is relevant because we're all going to die anyway. So you, you, you don't want to do anything it takes to save one life. It sounds like a good human humane principle, but we care about more than just, quote, saving life because it just means – one person will live a little bit longer if if having one person live live a little bit longer means that the rest of society is in despair mm. um, most of us would say i mean i wouldn't pick on one person mm. but i think the whole utilitarian calculus of public policy is is flawed that way i don't i mean i i, I think about it so anyway to finish that point up if, if you can't measure and quantify dignity and all you want to say is, well, the lockdown was successful because we reduced the death rate from COVID. I think that's it might be a good idea to reduce the death rate from COVID by locking down. I'm not saying it isn't. What I'm saying is, is that when you think about how to measure or judge that, you, you've got to have in mind the despair for people who can't make a living and support themselves or their family. Oh, we'll give them money. But that's not the same. And, and that might be a good idea, too. But mm. let's not pretend they're the same. They're not. So, all, all you know, and, and when confronted with this, people say, "Oh, but but lockdowns lead to suicide, and therefore we have to count the suicide deaths against the life saved from from less COVID." But it's more than just suicide; it's 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 dignity, it's mm -hmm. meaning. People, a lot of people, are in despair. Their dreams were shattered. Their business was closed. They lost their job. They lost their investment. They lost their reason for living. For some people, 
They can't see their friends. Those all those are all things that should count, but they can't be quantified, so they don't get counted. Again, I'm not saying they they therefore win out, mm. but I'm saying that they can't be counted. We have to constantly keep that in mind. Because as human beings, we get this urge to quantify, which is a good urge, really good mm. urge, because it leads to many wonderful things. But it's an imperfect urge because it often runs into this reality that there are important things we can't quantify. Yeah, my last guest was Martin Kuldoff, who's one of the co-authors oh, yeah. of the Great Barrington Declaration. Yeah. So he was all about that the total cost of the lockdown yeah. um, is greater than the, the, the benefit of saving the lives. Yeah. So, I mean, it's a Which very... is inconceivable in certain mm. ways, sure, but I sure. think he's wrong. It's relevant. That's a hot potato, something. yeah. yeah. <laughs> but that's that's the the core of economics, isn't it? You have you have to talk in terms of because there is one. You have to make someone has to make a decision. Do we lock down? What do we lock down? What do we? Yeah. What's the what's the benefit? And they use data. They you they Correct. do. But and they say, should. Yeah. They shouldn't just say it. You shouldn't just say, well, I have a feeling that this is a good idea. <laughs> That's a horrible practice. Yeah. But when we're confronted with uh, costs and benefits that are one side is quantifiable, count the number of lives saved in theory. It's not really either, by the way. We don't really I – mean, that's another problem. We don't really know whether the yeah. lockdowns and quarantines save lives or how, how many. Long, and, how, many, how long they had left to live and why and, they sick and, before. Yep. And, I mean, yep. and, and how long do you have to lock down for, you know? Uh, is a whole nother question to be effective a lot of places locked down it just came back all you did was ruin people's lives for the three six months you locked down mm-hmm. um possibly again we don't fully know i think we'll learn a little bit more about that and that's a good idea we should it's really important to try to quantify what we can quantify what i'm arguing for here is that we need to be mindful of the fact that not everything that we care about can be quantified and we don't want to forget the things that can't be quantified so you know, my analogy is everybody knows you might might know the expression when you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Oh yeah, I use that in another song. It's a, it's a good expression. Yeah, I just had that one. Uh, <laughs> but I'm saying something stronger, which is not only does everything look like a nail, you forget that there are things that aren't nails that you don't even can't even. It's not like oh that looks like a nail. It's like nothing. There's only nails. Everything's a nail. <laughs> and the idea that there's something other than a nail is unimaginable. Mm. So every we forget about the things that, that are hard to quantify. So I wouldn't argue, again, just to make this clear, I wouldn't argue that, oh, we know that the lockdowns are a mistake because they caused a lot of despair and they mm. only saved so many lives. And I, I, As you say, somebody had to make a decision often. Sometimes it's a decision that falls on us as individuals mm-hmm. about how much to to observe a lockdown, how to, much to self-quarantine, how much to shelter in place on our own estimate of what the value is to us. But we're thinking about social policy, political ramifications, public policy. Someone usually has to make a call. But and in making that call, they should have data on, on what yeah. the consequences are to the extent it's, it's available. But you, the hard part is remembering that, that there are things other than just the things you can quantify. But and you, you have to take that- those into account. Are you saying there should be a way to measure dignity, or is that am I missing that? No, no, I'm not. I'm explicitly saying that's a mistake because a lot of people say, "Yeah, well, we just need to measure dignity now." <laughs> it's like eh, it's a bad strategy. You're fooling mm. yourself. Mm. You know, it's like it's like um, what job should you? T- you're coming out of college. What job should you take? Well, I was just to tell my students, don't take the job that pays the most money. Mm. 
at least as a rule, don't have a rule, I will take the highest paying job. You want to look at how much you'll learn on the job, how much how satisfying the job will be, whether it will lead to other opportunities down the road. Don't just look at the current salary. That would be foolish. But of course, people are seduced by that number. Hmm. It's a number. It's powerful. I have one job that pays 50, one that pays 40. Well, I should take the 50, not necessarily. And so, and then you say, well, well how would I know? How should I know whether I should take the 40? What if, how do I, how do I know if the intangible things in the 40,000 job are worth as much as $10,000? And the answer is you don't. Hmm. Welcome to reality. Now what? Now you have to make a choice. And as you say, so people, we make those choices all the time, hmm. but just don't be a fool. Don't say, well, I look at the 50 and 50 is better than 40. This is a no brainer. Not true. Don't forget the intangibles. Yeah, I can understand human flourishing on a micro level for individuals, but does it work? Does it also work on the macro? What do you mean by that? Well, can 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 institutions and governments use that as well when they're making when they're making decisions and policy? Well, in theory, they can, um, but you have to do it wisely, and I don't think it's easy to do wisely. I think um, increasingly we live in a world where we want the government to help help me flourish, make me flourish, right, let right. me. And wait, that's to me that's a contradiction in terms. It's like. You know, I would never want to say, well, I don't care if I lose my job as long as the government gives me a check for the same amount. I don't think most people feel that way. Um, they don't find those two things equal. Uh, there is a, to me, very bizarre idea that we can measure national happiness. I can ask all the people in a society how happy they are on a scale of one to seven or one to five or one to 10. And then I'll do that every year. And then I'll try to figure out what policies are correlated with the number going up or what are correlated with the number going down. Well, that's got election. And I just, <laughs> kind of, <laughs> but I think there's an urge, you know, for economists, so-called happiness research to do that. I find that, uh, I find it, I find it intellectually bankrupt, first of all, because mm. there's no such thing as the happiness of the nation. Do I really, I mean, I don't even want to start with what's wrong with that. Um, you know, people say, yeah, well, the Finns, the Finns are happier than the Americans. And that's because they have good schools of, or free health care, whatever it is. Gin. And, and, yeah, that's what it is. <laughs> So but what, I don't, what I don't, about the Scandinavian I, model? Because that's what something I wanted to ask you about as well. Because you know we have this, the free market versus Keynesianism, things like that. And then, you know, is there like a third way? Is there, um, you know, like the Scandinavians seem to be have the best companies? You know, IKEA, you know, Lego, Volvo, Ericsson, and then, and they also have a great welfare state as well. And so, um, yeah, I, I love that idea. Oh, if only we had a company as good as Lego. Gosh, they're lucky. <laughs> you can build anything. Uh, of course. Well, that's the beauty of it, by the way, which I, you know, I made a a gesture toward my f love of free trade earlier. I can still use Legos even when they're made in a foreign country if we have free trade. We don't have to have our own Lego company or Duplo, which I don't know where Duplo is made. It's a Lego competitor. Um, Scandinavian model is um, first. It's good to remember other factors that are involved. Your shorthand was they have good companies, a good you know safety net, social welfare state. They also are very small. Uh, they're very homogeneous until recently. Um, they have a culture that is different than say the United States. Maybe better, maybe worse, but it's not the same. 
They do. They put a lot. I wouldn't necessarily. Well, they put a lot of value on this. Uh, what you're talking about, dignity and. Uh, yeah, which I think is great. I'm all for that. Um, but their definition of dignity might not be the same as mine, mm -hmm. right? Our culture is different in America. Uh, and as I mentioned earlier, I'm moving to Israel soon. Yeah. Very different Israel than America. Different than homogeneous in a different way. Kind of not, but kind of you know also kind <laughs> of homogeneous. Um, I say kind of because first there's an Arab population there. It's quite large. It's not just Jews who live there. And then they have the Jews that live there from all over the yeah. world. They're from a massive influx of Jews from the Soviet Union, from Ethiopia. So in a way, it's an incredibly diverse country, but it's also kind of homogeneous. Um, but going back to Scandinavia, you know, Scandinavia used to be a lot more socialist, uh, a, a lot more top down. I would say top down rather than Keynesian, just top down, more regulation. And they've allowed a lot more capitalism, a lot more freedom, and they're they're doing a pretty good job. It seems like um, I've never been there. I don't know if I'd ever want to live there. Um, you know, it's a different set of values and attitudes than in other places, and that's great. I, you know, I, let them. I, it's wonderful. I just wouldn't say that if if we did what they did. Mm -hmm. If we adopted their policy, we could boost our national happiness number from a 4.32 to a 4.47. But isn't the United <laughs> States, isn't, aren't you diverse countries inside the, can't they have these local states have these different policies or doesn't it? Yeah, that's that too. Yeah. Okay. All right. So what else did I have wanted to ask you about? Um, yeah, you had some fascinating conversation with Nassim Nicholas Taleb. He's a, I really admire that guy. Have you? Um, has he inspired your writing as well? Very much. Um, I've learned a lot from him. He's um, certainly the next book that I'm working on is heavily influenced by his his view of of data and certainty. Uh, what we would the fancy word is um, epistemological humility. <laughs> the limits to what we know that's the not fancy phrase for that um being aware that we don't know everything uh so he's a much more uh supportive is not the right word he's much more sympathetic to rules of thumb that have emerged from tradition um as am i as are people like gerd gigerenzer who i also interviewed what are so-called heuristics, shorthands, as opposed to more complex analyses that purport to be more reliable than often are not. Um, you know, I like to, I had a guest on uh, William Byers, who's a mathematician. Is that, I can't remember if it's Byer or Byers, B-Y-E-R-B-Y-E-R-S. Mm -hmm. he, um, he talks about how there are a lot of words that, that we can define, but we don't really understand easily so one of the examples he uses is randomness there it's, you can define randomness um i'm not going to try but you can look it up in a dictionary but the reason i'm not going to try is that if you start thinking about randomness it, it's quite a bit more complicated than the dictionary definition to fully understand ramifications and so describing randomness what it is is not so helpful actually what you really need to do is think about what it means for your life for your interpretation of research for how to think about 
insuring yourself against risk. And when you start doing that, you realize, oh my gosh, it's really a rich, complicated, nuanced idea. Um, I'll just take one example. Uh, economists have spent, spent a lot of time talking about expected utility or expected payoffs. That's a mathematical number. That's the probability of something happening times the consequences of it happening. So the probability of things happening usually has to add up to one. You know, there's a, if I'm going to I'm going to move to to Italy. Oh, there's a 0.4 chance I'm going to meet the girl of my dreams decide to settle down in the in the Italian Alps and uh, that would be awesome. So that's a what I say 0. 0.4, 0. 0.4 and now I'm going to call the payoff from that a million dollars. Then there's but there's a 0. 0.3 chance that I'll find Italians annoying. Uh, I'll hate the food. Really, <laughs> well, really, hey, it's hey. a lot lower than 0. 0.3. I know it's a lot lower than 0. 0.3, but 0. 0.05, whatever. I go through all these probabilities and I multiply time the outcomes and then I get an expected payoff, which I just put in dollars. Stupid because it's not a dollar thing. But economists do that all the time. You put a monetary measure on it. What people would be willing to pay to have that. And then I multiply the probabilities time the outcomes and I get the expected payout. But I don't get the expected payout. I get the actual payout. I either go there and, and meet the girl of my dreams, or I'm I get I get a terrible illness from yeah. pasta, and I and I and my life's ruined because it's non-transferable. So, isn't it? so you, can't, when you I, can't sell that experience to anyone. So what's the point in putting exactly. a dollar value on it? And I and I can't and I can't consume the full range of possibilities that would a, a thousand people can do that. Whatever that means. If a thousand or a million people go, where I'd get those, in theory, I'd get those probabilities from saying, yeah, about 40% of people who go to Italy love it and stay there, and about 5% hate it. And so that's where I got my probabilities from, which is silly because not, I don't get those probabilities. I get me. So that idea, which is really obvious and, and nothing really not, in a way, trivial, is actually quite profound because we have trouble remembering that. You know, the, the, the the version that Talib uses sometimes or other people use is, you know, I can't swim. I got to cross this river. How deep is it? Well, on average, it's about a foot deep. So you're, I guess you're <laughs> fine. But if there's a part where I'm crossing where it's 10 feet deep and the average is one because there's places where it's only six inches deep, I'm going to drown. Yeah. <laughs> and so Talib reminds you that you often care disproportionately about low mm -hmm. probability events that lead to ruin. I just one insight, you know, we're talking, you know, sorry, it's a long answer, I but I, I think that he is the deepest thinker on these kind of issues. And he's spawned a cottage industry of similar thinking people. And I'm in that, I'm an acolyte in that well, sense. I just, I just love um, the, this idea I've, that you've, you know, you've been exposed to all these thinkers from your podcast. So you, you, you know, you had to concentrate when everyone was speaking and you've, so your, your mind is, meshed all these ideas and has changed your it hurts <laughs> <laughs> it hurts my head no but that's a very sweet thing to say and i i uh as i'm writing this this book on numbers i have a list of podcast guests that have influenced my thinking yeah. on them of the book so talib is one uh gerd gigerenser would be another la paul the philosopher is another agnes callard the philosopher is another um Luis Zingales, uh, Paul Flaterer, a lot of different guests. I'm 
trying to synthesize what I've learned from them to write about this general topic of data and decision making. But, you know, this morning, actually, I thought about the fact that, you know, a lot of what I'm thinking about was influenced by this book by Ian McGilchrist um, called The Master and His Emissary about the left and right sides of the brain. And, and the idea that in that book, you know, he says we have an analytical way of looking at the world where we tell ourselves stories that make sense to us, but maybe aren't really true. And then the other side of our brain is actually a more holistic, um, integrated set of ideas. And that's kind of what I'm doing in my book. I'm kind of bouncing back and forth between those two crazy – it's a very speculative, creative book. But I realized that it actually had an impact on me that, that I didn't realize fully until – I start writing the book, and I'm sure there's ten others like that. Of course, that's 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 the glorious part about education, and I, I'm increasingly part of because I'm a podcaster and I talk to hundreds of people. I often think of what of knowledge is and wisdom, pretentious word, but understand it's called understanding. Understanding comes from the ability to connect disparate insights from different people, different texts, and reform those into a a vision, a perspective, a lens, a framework uh, that draws on on, on multiple uh, perspectives and then applies it to something that none of those apply to, uh, to, to, to be able to help you understand it. That, I think, is what real education can and should be. Very high level, obviously. Doesn't mm-hmm. happen very often, but that's the goal. Oh, we've come full circle to your, your yeah, new job. True. Your, uh... Yeah, exactly. Yeah. God, you're such a pro. <laughs> yeah, That's you're fantastic. kind. No, fantastic. So, so what's the book going to be called? Uh, I'm not sure. Um, I have a tentative title. I don't know if I'm supposed to say it yet, so I'm going to keep it quiet. You can tell me. You can tell me. What it, you can ask. You can tell me, and you can have your listeners tell me what it should be called. Um, I, I, I titles are really weird, by the way. So mm. often. The, the publisher or the editor picks the title and the and the author hates it right. and they they even say so sometimes i'll put in the in the acknowledgments uh oh, we picked this title it was kind of a compromise it wasn't the one i wanted it's like they're so bitter and i'm thinking why would you let them pick it like that oh because they know what works they don't they know they don't know but they might know more than the author that would be the argument they have they've got data they do exactly yeah what we found is that two word <laughs> titles one word titles those are the that's blink mm-hmm. blink did really well so let's call it we'll call your book numbers <laughs> which yeah. is horrible yeah. or and then you got the subtitle right mm-hmm. oh yeah much is usually very long very long right i like that in my my fantasy title for for my books is always like a one or two or three word title or maybe four, the blank of blank, and then the mm-hmm. subtitle, right? And the yeah. subtitle, you know, in the 19th century, in the 18th century, they weren't just long. They were like two pages, an exploration of, of, of Adam Smith's journey and in intellectual pursuits, philosophical way to deal with his childhood and his study under Hutchison and Mandeville's work. To, you know, With no, no full stop, no comma. No, it just, just keeps going, one right? Breath, one breath. Right? And I don't. And I don't remember, but, you know, to me, this is like, uh, you know, David Copperfield. I don't remember what the actual sound is. The story of a young man who and then he had to do this and this and that, you know. So uh, so I don't know what it'll really be called, but uh, I'm sure it'll have a short title and then a longer subtitle. 
because I got it's always good to when I write the song is to have just somebody's title and then just I just make the. Well, I'll tell you what, Jack. I'll okay. talk to my agent. Okay. Uh, and I'll see if or an editor, and I'll ask them if they think it's okay to start reveal. The book's supposed to be done in March, and it's supposed to come out by March 2021, and come out later in the the manuscript to be done then, and then it would be published later in 2021. Uh, there's always a chance the title gets you know rejected. I have my with the, the working title, so you have to be careful. But I'll see if I can get permission to use the work. You can use the working title. Oh great! Yeah, then you say you can't change it because listen, Jack's done the song. Sorry. Exactly. Numbers time. Yeah. Statistics get twisted. What kind of life are we living? Our world is data driven. Correlations, not causation. The truth is often hidden. Our world is data driven. Got no destination, distracted by the stations Money and crap and all those complications Still I try God damn, don't know how to do this Oh no, gotta hit the digits I eat, I sleep, I feel I'm living my life flat I'm running, running on the running wheel God knows, do not wanna do this All work However, I'll come through this For life, for family, for pleasure For now and on and on forever Every time the same Why do I even play? Losing at the numbers game Bad sampling, wrong baseline Mistakes are not forgiven World is data driven Cause of bias, interpretation Come connect or make decisions When the world is data driven Got no destination, distracted by the stations Money and crap and all those complications Still I try Running, running on the running wheel God knows. 
sand Why do I even play? I'm losing at the numbers game Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review it on your podcast app. If you like the song, find it on all streaming services or at podsongs.com. Thanks to my musicians, Maurizio San Nicola and Massimino Vodza and my researcher, Dori Verba. And to you, the listener, thanks for tuning in. <laughs>